My name's Adele Onyango and welcome to another episode of Legally Clueless. No, seriously, I have no clue what I'm doing, but I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. Hey you, welcome to episode 201 of Legally Clueless. Thanks for rocking with this podcast. If you've been a day one, I truly appreciate you. If you're new to this podcast, welcome to the family. Audio episodes like this go out every single Monday. And if you head over to legallycluelessafrica.com, wait, let me just take off my earrings. (laughs) They're hitting the microphone. Okay, so if you head over to legallycluelessafrica.com, You can check out our video series. We've got three seasons out. Check out our tour series. Sign up to join our community. And there's something brand new. If you hit the events tab, you will see the calendar of our 2023 events. Right now, we've got the dates and the type of events that we're going to be having out. Just so that you can mark your calendars. You can share it with your group of friends or people who would love to be part of this community that's super focused on wellness and intentional healing and so that they can mark their calendars and block out those days as well. I'm super excited for the type of events that we have because they are very intentional, very well thought out. And then that I can do events with one of my therapists for you is freaking awesome. Okay, but back to this episode, I have legit been a fan of the artist whose story you're going to hear. It took me such a long time to gather the courage to slide into his DMs and shoot my shot to get him on Legally Clueless, and it happened. Listen to this. The most obvious and iconic project that I've done is a project that is in the middle of town, Haile Selassie Avenue, uh, in between Central Bank and uh, Cooperative Bank. It's in um, Extelcom's house. At one point, I tweeted that I wanted to, to paint that building and forgot about that, that tweet. So he told me that the governor saw your tweet about you wanting to paint Extelcom's house and he's interested in making that happen. My earliest memory of me doing anything artistic was when I was in nursery school. My desk mate drew a car. And it was a triangular car, like a triangular matchstick. And I was so sure that cast didn't look like that. When I went to boarding school, I was shipped to a school in Makweni. This school was a high-performing school. In the middle of nowhere, there was like a forest surrounding the entire school. So couldn't escape. That is Victard. His story is coming up a little later in this episode. All right, so I really do hope that you've had a fantastic week. I... I've had a really good week because first we had 200 episodes and I was completely surprised on Sunday. It was such, it was so, I think I'm one of those people who love surprises and someone got me a legally clueless cake to celebrate 200 episodes, which was so thoughtful because I hadn't vocalized that we were hitting 200 episodes. So that felt very nice, very thoughtful. And I just, ugh. It just warmed my heart and I felt so good. And it tasted so good. My goodness. (laughs) You know, I love baking. And when I tasted that cake, I was like, maybe I should just quit baking because that cake tasted so good. And I used to think my cakes were moist. (laughs) When you taste a cake by a professional, you're just like, I, what what have I been doing? Anyway, yeah, so that was kind of nice. And I think it just gave me, you know, reflecting on the 200 episodes just gave me a lot of fuel to keep working on the different ways that the business is expanding. So our events in February, we're going to be launching something really cool, all just centered on intentional wellness and just making this community as beautiful as I I think we already are, of course, but like that we can get, you know what I mean? And so, yeah, I... 
I had a good a good week. And one of the things that I worked on is a trip to Nanyuki. It is a beautiful town. Yeah, Nanyuki is not a city. It's a city. Before people get mad at me. Okay, let's call it a town or a small city. <laughs> in Kenya. So over a year ago, I wanted to go around Kenya just like stopping in different cities and recording stories. You know, just me, my trusty car, Lebohang, that's my car's name, and my microphone. And I thought that I could go to this little towns or whatever and just like stay in one town for like a month or two weeks and yeah, record stories and then come back home and just really be on the road. I wanted to be out on the road more than in studio. I was obviously a little scared because that's what we do when we come up with ideas. <laughs> we get a bit scared and I told someone close to me about this plan. Their initial reaction was to be against it. They cited safety reasons, etc. And they just projected their fears onto me. So that topped off with my own fears. I kind of thought, well, no, I, I couldn't possibly do this. And it's it's really funny how we can absorb other people's fears and choose to just like shelve our ideas. It's not only enough to be careful, I think, with who you share your ideas or like your goals or ambitions with. I think it's equally important who you surround yourself with, you know, and I I have come to prefer people who will, yes, interrogate my ideas, um, because if I share it with you at this point in my life, I really want to hear your thoughts. But I, I prefer people who will interrogate the ideas from a place of abundance and not fear. So any feedback or any criticism is to make the idea better. That's where they're coming from, you know, and it's up to me to then filter and decide what makes sense and what doesn't make sense with the initial idea I had because nobody can see your vision as clearly as you, you know? And so I just really want to be surrounded by driven people who are soft, are trying every day to be a little more self-aware and to heal. So when I do present anything to them, or even just when we talk about life issues, it's not from a position of fear or a position of there's only one way life can be done. I just think it's very important as well to be very intentional about the people who surround you, who you surround yourself with. And many, many episodes ago, I think before the boundaries episode, but I, I talked about it in the boundaries episode, was the circle exercise my therapist did with me. You know, and it's the one where you draw a small circle, bigger circle around that one, a bigger circle around that other one, bigger circle. And you are, it kind of represents the degrees of closeness to you with the smallest circle in the middle being your inner inner innermost circle you know with all the boundary work that I've done I realized that first I'm the only one in the innermost circle which is great very scary I didn't think that was how it was meant to be but I'm getting very comfortable with it and I can see the the gains you know, I can see why, based on my personality, that serves me better. And then the one surrounding that circle has one person. And then the one surrounding that circle has one person again. <laughs> and and I'm kind of okay with that. You know, I, I think it's meant that I can hear myself more clearly. I don't have fears projected on me. And I can figure out my own fears. You know what I mean? Yeah, so... 
I just decided that I'm going to jump in my car and I'm going to go to Nanuki. And I'd always wanted to do this. And then I got an email from somebody in Nanuki who wanted to share their story. And I thought, I would really love to, to go out there for this story. And I thought, wait, I have another friend in Nanuki who I was meant to be recording. And I thought, but... I've always been intrigued by Nanuki. There's a point that I wanted to settle down there. So why can't we get in a car and just like go there? (laughs) Literally. (laughs) And when I was doing it, I was like, hang on, this is a thing you wanted to do way over a year ago, like back in 2020 into 2021. And you just kind of got scared out of it. That's what I'm doing. If you're in Nanuki, there's a new storyteller form link. So if you check out the show notes you can fill out the form and i'll get back to you with the dates of when i'm coming anywho i'm also working on the fear episode rightly so after everything i've just shared that's going to be coming up in episode 202 so if you have some thoughts on it just the same way as we did with the last episode maybe you could share with me what fears do you fight often is it fear of the unknown fear of failure fear of being alone and are there particular things that you do that help you fight that particular fear if you have thoughts on fear Share those with me on our Instagram page. We're at Legally Clueless Africa. There's a link to the page in the show notes so that I could incorporate your thoughts in the fear episode that's going to be out in episode 202. Okay, let's jump into 100 African stories. This, first and foremost, I didn't know at the time of the recording is the first time that Victor had shared his life story. I've been such a fan of his murals around Nairobi's where I've seen them. Funny enough, my neighbor, how wild, because I'm not in Nairobi anymore, but I went to my neighbor's house to see the progress in her renovations. And there was this beautiful mural on the backside of her house. So gorgeous. Guess who did it? Victor. I was just like, oh my goodness, I know him. And I'm such a fan. And so I was following him on Twitter. And I was just like, you know what? I wonder what this guy's story is, you know? And I decided to just slide in his DMs, ask him to be on Legally Clueless. And he was in the third season of our video series, which is obviously a condensed version of the story. So here is the full story of Victor, the muralist from Kiambu. A hundred African stories on Legally Clueless. Stories from Africa. My name is Victor Wangi, also known as Victor Wangi. I am from Nairobi, Kenya. I just pretty much found myself here, but I, I grew up in Kiambu. Growing up was a, Kiambu has this very village, sort of like, a, it's a village setup. So I had a full village experience. I didn't see a lot of things until I was too old <laughs> and in the city already. I am a mural artist. Uh, what I do is large-scale painting. It doesn't matter the size of the building. Like I'm a painter through and through, so I can paint on paper, I can paint on canvas, but I mostly prefer to work on buildings and walls and uh, from very small sizes to very huge walls. What I mean by village life is, from what I can remember, it was very brown. I feel like it's only recently that I've started to see color. In the 2010s, it was very brown, like the whitest whites were a bit creamish. Growing up, I grew up in a very small, small-scale farm. Basically, it was farm life. We, we had a couple of cows 
they practically raise dust because you know there, there is that entire process where like we have cows we take care of these cows and they give us milk to uh, pay for your school and all that that was what growing up in kiambu was was like and then it's actually very close from where i grew up you can see the entire nairobi skyline S- sort of like when you look uh, into the horizon that's what you see and you can see the city lights but you're still very much isolated like in my experiences growing up there was um, going to basically uh, harvest coffee in the huge uh, huge farms owned by corporations so would go uh, do that during holidays and when i when i was still in school there were people who would go do that during schooling uh, they would basically run away from school abscond school and just go do that you know i think at, at around that time I was in between class 1 and class 5. Um a barrel, a barrel of coffee, basically to go harvest that, to pick that coffee, uh you'd get paid around 20 shillings to 40 shillings. As a villager, as a village kid, that's a lot of money. There is so much you can do. So many places you can pass by. So I remember the first time we went to collect coffee, I went with my brother. Uh he's a lawyer now, but Yeah, friends of his uh basically called us and they told us that they were going to pick coffee. So I tagged along. I was in class 1. That was in the year 2000. When I went, I remember I was very tired, but my mom had packed lunch for us. So I was very tired by around 11, so I wanted to just go home. I didn't manage to get an entire say barrel. So a bucket, it was a bucket. So in the evening, his friends and my brother basically like pulled so that I, I had like one bucket to get paid for i got paid 20 shillings by i got home with one shilling like i gave my dad one shilling so that's pretty much what kiambu was like growing up in kiambu was like i had actually i was born in nairobi but we went to kiambu when i was around 5 6ish so my first language was swahili but when you go to a village setting where no one is speaking to you in swahili uh basically your life you know your language what you know tends to flip over i i remember i used to draw we had this mica table and my dad my dad is an artist as well not professionally but he has the gift so he would draw on the mica table on paper with a pencil and I, i'd follow through like i wanted to see what that was like i think that made my mom mad <laughs> to an extent because she's the one who had to clean after us But I remember I was just interested. I was keen on doing that. My earliest memory of me doing anything artistic was when I was in nursery school. I don't remember what nursery school I went to uh, oddly enough. So my deskmate drew a car and it was a triangular car like a triangular matchstick car and I was so sure that car didn't look like that. I was so sure like you know this should look a bit different. So I was there helping him, helping my friends basically do that but i did not think at that moment that there was anything artistic in what i was doing i just felt like it was right you know we went to a village set up and i just continued doodling it's very hard to basically get my attention to do anything i'm a very i'm a scatter brain my my mind is all over when i get bored i doodle i draw and that's pretty much how i coped with everything because school was boring there's barely anything that was interesting enough like when i was in class uh, from class 1 to class 5 we had fights with my teachers because of how how much space the drawings in my school books had taken because i would do school work 
from the front of the page and then I would start drawing from the back page. And some way, some way, I think the, <laughs> the drawings would uh, occupy almost the entire book. So that was, that was pretty much what was happening. And because my parents also got an idea that I was a very distracted kid, they transferred me to a now boarding school. Looking back, I can see how my life was mapped out. If I had stayed in Kiambu, schooled in Kiambu, it was very, I would have become a, I would have started working very young. There was access to money, town is very close by, you only pay 20 bob. Back in the day, you only pay 20 bob and you're in town, you get to do a job or to go back home. And when you're a kid, that life is very interesting. The quick money, the construction sites, the farming where you get paid to do those odd jobs. It is very enticing. So yeah, I went to boarding school. When I went to boarding school, I was shipped to a school in Makweni, in a place called uh, Kiboko. There is, a, there is a research center by Kari, the Kenya Agricultural Research Institute. Now changed its name. I don't know to what now. But what was there was a research center. And the researchers, because they had kids, um, schooling kids and all that, they, uh, this institution uh, had created a school for these kids, primary school. And that was back in the 80s. My dad is an artist, he can draw, but he did a completely, he, he went into, into something completely different, uh, something to do with livestock management, range management. And that is what Kari was all about and that research center. So he sort of like knew about that school. This school was a high performing school in the middle of nowhere. Um, there was like a forest surrounding the entire school. So couldn't escape. You find yourself trapped there and the only thing to do because of where it was it was at was just to study. And there was a lot of pressure to just just study. And then when I was there, I came across a newspaper article, but it was about a prominent Kenyan artist, Kenyan visual artist. Like I wanted to be a lot of things when I was a kid, but this was about a prominent Kenyan artist. His name is Kariuki Kafiri, I think, who'd sold a sketchbook to a Japanese couple for around 60,000. You know, 60,000 in early 2000s was a lot of money and I was keen on, you know, I was curious. I had wanted to be a lot of things. I was pretty much, I was a bit bright, like not, not the sharpest kid in the class, but I was a bit bright. I knew that if I had put my uh, mind to it, I could be pretty much anything, but I was too distracted to be that. So I now became very interested in becoming a visual artist. So like, I thought the best way to do that was by basically studying hard, going to a good school, picking up architecture later, and then I could become an architect practicing uh, visual art, uh, practicing art. But that did not happen. So from there, I got to high school. When I went to high school, uh, the year I was supposed to be enrolling was in 2008. That was when there was post-election violence. So I was called to a school that was still in Makweni, Makweni boys. And I did not like the idea of going back to Makweni because that's where, it's a hardship area. It's not a really, you know, it's not a, it's not a very beautiful place to be in really. It's, it's a hardship area. So I was thinking to myself that I wanted to go somewhere else, but just not there. So, and ideally it would have been really nice if I could go to a school that had an arts program. So pretty much all of the national schools I'd applied to had an art program, like they, they taught art in their curriculum. So yeah, my dad took it upon himself, like he walked around, he went to those schools asking about whether I could get a slot in until he went to one of those schools and 
a teacher there told him that you are looking for a school for your kid that has an arts program and Makweni boys already has an art program. <laughs> so uh, he came back home, talked to me, told me that, look, this is, things are like this and it's a tough year, so you have to understand. But this school has something you like and maybe just give it a chance. And I, I found myself back there again. So this school had art in the curriculum and that's exactly what I was going there to do anyway. Like I might have dropped other all the other subjects. That's, that's exactly what I just wanted to do. So I got to this school and uh, there was that element of discipline. When you're doing art, not, not as a hobby, but as a subject, there is a discipline that is instilled in you, um, I think. Uh, maybe someone who has not done that might think about it in a totally different angle. But now it's sort of like judged. It's, it's objective. You're trying to meet certain objectives. So my high school went pretty quickly, like the high school years. I, I don't remember anything about about that because I was mostly holed up in the art studio, in the school art studio, just passing time there. A lot of things passed passed by me, like like a time my classmate, uh, sorry, not my classmate, my deskmate was in a squad that I was trying to burn down the school, but I did not know anything about it because I was in the art studio and it was actually my dorm, my dorm room where I used to sleep. So I was, I was that clueless about a lot of things. And then after that, KCSE, I just wanted to be an adult. I, I just wanted to be, to not be at a place where people were telling me not, uh, what not to do. And I knew that I wanted to be an artist. So KCSE happened, I was underage. I was looking for sign writing jobs because I wanted to get a bit of experience. And when you're coming from a place like Kiambu, where you don't have any uh, connections and any, you don't have, you're not in touch with any of the uh, professional practicing artists, you really have no idea of where to start from. And for me, the easiest and the best way to sort of like start uh, from where I was seated was by going into sign writing. But I never got a single job. So instead I had to, I had to do construction to basically like, you know, pocket money had dried up to raise money to support myself at that time because I was still a teenager, not yet an adult. I was just somewhere in between. I did a lot of farm work as well in between there. In that, in that year in between when I graduated from high school and uh, started my university, like basically enrolled to university. And of all the work that I did, the only thing that I probably really liked was trimming hedges. Like, I'm, I'm really good at that. And it got to a point where people would hire me to trim their hedges. So if right now, like, if I quit doing murals and, like, went to live a very simple life, I think that's what I would do for a living. I would just trim hedges. That's important because later, that's, that's pretty much what now led me to murals. So I enrolled into a university. That was in 2012. And now things got more serious. It was more intense. I say art students are a lot like medicine students. You barely have time. But if I told, if I said that to, my, to a medicine student, they would probably be offended because they think and they know that they do a very time intensive course. We are a bit like that as well. I think there are other people that also have that aspect. Like what they do is very time consuming is probably um, engineers and film film students in their later years, I think. So now in campus, just there was, I was always broke. So because the school provides the bare minimum um, and art equipment supplies, 
are very expensive to start with. So the basic paper, basic, you know, you need to print a lot of things. You need to uh, use very expensive materials. So I was always broke. That pretty much moved on pretty quickly. But now I was in a situation where I had like all of these other people, like from all over the country, we were lumped together, people who had an interest in art and design. And it was very interesting because you sort of like, I, I had peers. People I could I could look like across my shoulder and see people who were in the same level with and how they were trying to do what I was trying to do as well. And that was interesting. That was that was what campus was like. So I saw things I'd never seen before. That's like from people who were ahead of us. And I I could see how skill sort of like transformed going forward. So when I joined university, because of that exposure to now what was also happening in the industry, it became, it was a very interesting point in my life. He's a village kid, zero internet, zero exposure to what's going on in the world, now super exposed to everything. I was almost overwhelmed. It's like, I don't know how exactly I can explain this, but I think it should be what it should feel like for a kid to first experience sugar, you know? It's too conflicting, too many things happening at once. And I was hooked. I was, I was like, this is, this is really nice. At the same time, I could see my level of skill, of skill and how it sort of like translated across my peers. And for the first time, now I got introduced to murals. But I had an idea of who I wanted to be. Remember when I was in around class six, I saw this guy sell a sketchbook for all that money. And I knew that I was destined to become that kind of artist. So in my mind, I was going to be the most brilliant gallery artist there was, you know, there ever was. Until I met some real artists. <laughs> that was very interesting. After going to a couple of exhibitions and seeing how people think, listening to people, seeing how they articulate their ideas visually, I realized that there was a way I had thought of myself and it was not adding up with what I was, I was seeing. So it's like if you're seeing in the shower every morning, and then you go to a concert and you're like, wait a minute, I think there's something happening here. I might be underqualified. Um, that was what I had thought. I tried applying for residencies. I took my portfolio everywhere and I noticed that there was a process to it. Maybe I was a bit frustrated. Maybe there was a way I was looking at things then that was not going to work for me. So I, I think I took a break. I took a break. I took a step backwards. And I thought to myself that I had to look at some uh, at this thing, look at the art industry as a whole differently. But yeah, I was not I was not going to quit yet. I was still very keen, very keen on getting my work out there. So when now it comes to murals, it started with me doing huge paintings. And the thing is, paintings are sort of like limited by the size of people's houses. You do a really huge painting, and it becomes a problem because now. There is no one that can accommodate it in their houses. Like it's a brilliant painting. They really love it, but they can only like say, look at it and pass, pass by it. It's like having a truck in, in a residential parking, you know, or parking a train in, in the middle of town simply doesn't work. So there has to be structures. So with my background in trimming hedges, it basically that had taught me to uh, create something and just step back. And when I was creating small paintings, I was not getting the satisfaction that I wanted. It felt a lot like it was not enough until I started doing huge paintings. And 
I felt that satisfaction now start to come in. So with huge paintings, it was more challenging because creating a huge piece is actually a lot of work. The bigger it gets, the more work there is, you know, and you could as well as do just a small painting. You just paint on an A4 and just go home. But I was keen on doing something bigger. I was stuck there and I realized that I really loved huge challenges, you know. So it took a while, then it transitioned to walls. And now I could not get enough of walls. Like I just wanted to work on walls. But there was a new challenge now that came with murals. You know, with a painting or a drawing, you can just draw in your room and no one will bother you. But when you're creating on people's spaces, you have to talk to these people. They have to understand the vision. They have to, you guys have to talk. Like you have to be in agreement that what you're creating is something that is in line with what they want. So I was stuck somewhere. So at around this time, I'm also finishing uh, university and I really want to paint on walls, but I'm not getting any walls. Then Samsung, Samsung came calling. I remember I had just finished my end of, uh, basically the fourth year exams. It was an exhibition, it was very intense. And after that, I just wanted to rest. But I went back home and I now wanted to go do something because it gets to a point where you, you rest and it becomes lethargic. You just want to get active again. So what happened is Samsung had a project they were doing in a school in Rongai. And the way they pitched it to us, they came to the school. There was a point when organizations, when organizations wanted projects done, they would go to institutions that were affiliated with art. And they would know that from there, they could basically get people who could help them. So they came to the school. They asked about people who could uh, help them do that project. And the way they pitched it to us was they wanted some people to teach art to kids. So I, it was not exactly what I wanted, but I just wanted to get out of the house. And then they took us to this school and they broke, us, they broke down the project and what they wanted. So we figured out that it was a mural. But I was super excited. Like here was a chance to do a mural. They were providing all the material. Remember art materials and supplies are super expensive. So yeah, we did that project. It was intense. By the that day, we were already hating ourselves because we had not seen it from that point of view. We did not know that it was going to be that tiring. Like it was raining. It rained so heavily at one point that our brushes and gallons of paint were carried away. Like it, it was an, in a school setting where you can imagine kids bringing your, br uh, your brushes from like 200 meters away being like, hey, I think this is yours. And you know, that's how hard and heavily it trained. Plus we got pretty frustrated. We had undershot the budget by so much. So it was tiring work, you know, it's basically like being a construction worker. At one point, I remember we painted what we thought was a very brilliant yellow uh, in, in the evening so that we could cover more ground. And when we came in the next day, we discovered that it was actually a brown. It was not yellow, but it taught us a lot. So at around the same time, because I had just finished my university, I had managed to talk to some guys and they offered me studio space in Railway Museum, a place called Railway Museum. There used to be studio spaces for artists there. So now uh, I was starting to meet more people that we were in the same industry with and mentors, people who are, you know, ahead of us and all that. So I remember showing that project to a friend of mine. He looked at it and he asked me how we had done it. So I told him that that was pretty easy, you know, took chalk, we sketched the project and uh, we painted. And to him, he, he didn't understand 
how we used chalk. So the perfect analogy to explain this is if you needed to wash a street or if you needed to you know, clean a house, a huge house, and you using a brush or using a chalk, uh, a piece of chalk to draw or to sketch is a lot like using a toothbrush to clean an entire street. But now when you sketch using say something like spray paint, it's a lot like using a mop. You cover more ground. So this guy was like, I don't believe that you guys used um, chalk because you could have actually done way more and covered more ground if you had used spray paint, you know? Like if you walk around Nairobi, you see there are huge excess that are drawn on illegal structures using spray paint on buildings. It would be really hard if they did that with chalk, you know? You have to go up close and personal to do that. So now that introduced me to something else. Like it gave me, it made me curious and want to, to understand how spray paint worked like. And that's pretty much how I got into spray painting. That's exactly what people think is graffiti. For me, it's not graffiti, it's spray paint. It's just the tool. So I picked the tool. So it's 2016. I had just gotten out of school. I think graduation was pending and um, I was now going to a studio on a daily basis. And it was a bit like a day job. So I was staying at a place that I paid 3,500 shillings, you know, uh, monthly rent. That was my monthly rent. It was, it, there was a very nice landlady there. She was very understanding. That's why I had stayed before I uh, finished school and all that. It was at a point where I was really broke. So now my friend, Strok, my mentor now, came into the studio and he showed me this project that needed to be done. And pretty much everybody who was established by then did not want to do that project. I think people were busy, but it was not a really, it was not the kind of project that people wanted to do. So it had been passed down. And now my, my friend was now passing it down to me. So now they told me about this project, the budget was 10K. Like they told me that, hey, look, there's this client, he's offering 10K for this project. Are you in, are you interested? So I was like, sure, I'm interested. And I remember what it was, it was a tree. Trees are very detailed. I, I don't like organic, I don't like organic lines because there is no arrangement really. Um, so now this guy told me that, hey, look, this client wants this done in spray paint. I had never used spray paint before. So I was like, uh, I'll find a way to do it. But this guy told me that, look, I know he wants spray paint, but what, what you should know is that this is a very intricate project. You don't have to use spray paint. You carry along a bit of your acrylic paint. That's the paint we use in the studio. And um, once you do a few touch-ups, a few details with acrylic paint, you can touch it up with now spray paint and maybe he'll get satisfied. So now when he was telling me that, I had, I had 1,200 shillings in my bank account. I was trying to raise more money to cover the balance for my rent. That's 3,500 shillings. I, at that time, back, back then, spray paint used to go for 150 shillings a can. So he advised me to pass by a particular shop in town, downtown Nairobi, uh, where you have the auto spare uh, shops. That's where we buy spray paint in Kirinyaga Road. That evening, I went to the bank I took out uh, 900 shillings and we agreed in the client, like we had agreed on the time to meet and all that because he had been given my contact. So I went back home with it. So I was supposed to buy like four cans, which would have been like 600 shillings. But I thought just in case of anything, I don't know how to use this medium just to be on the safe side. Let me buy like six of them just to be on the safe side and go to site with this. 
So the next morning, I got to site. It was in Upper Hill, community area. I'd never been. I was not very familiar with that area. I won't disclose the exact uh, place, but it's still somewhere I passed by, and I know the mural is still out. So I met this guy. He, we had planned and arranged to meet at 9, but he was late, and that made me very nervous because I'm very keen with time. But I met him, and he showed me the wall. He told me what the client wanted. Man, he told me to start. He trusted me, told me to start. So I started. He was, he's an interior designer. So while I was working, he was doing other work. Like he was doing fittings and, and stuff like that. He was pretty busy as well. So yeah, I, it was going to be like a six hour project. So at one point, I started detailing with acrylic paint and I did it for too long. I think this guy noticed. He was like, wait, I had specified that this project needs to be done with uh, spray paint. So I told him that, yes, I'm going to touch it up with spray paint. But look, there's some very intricate details that cannot be done with spray paint. So you just have to understand. And he understood. So I touched it up a bit. At this point, because when you're spray painting, you basically use your forefinger uh, to press on the nozzle. My finger was getting really tired. I'd never done it before. I was spray painting with my thumb, like just to keep things balanced. So now went back to the brushes and the acrylic paint. So this guy told me that, hey, stop. I think I have to talk to the client so that we get to an, to an understanding that this is exactly what he wants. So now, at this point, I can see the 10K slipping away because if this client does not really like what we are doing, then he will just say that he doesn't and that's how I'm going to miss out on paying my rent. So he talked to the client because he explained, he told me that there is no use in us doing this project and not getting paid. I'd just rather talk to the client get to an understanding and move on from there. So they talked. They talked, they came to an agreement and he told me that, hey, just proceed. So now, it was at around 12 that time, uh, I had projected that it would go for say like six hours. That was the time I'd, I'd given myself. So this guy came to me and he was like, I, I think it's starting to come along. When he said that, I knew I was on the right track. And I just continued. Then he stopped me. He, a, a while later, he, he was like, now this is it. I think you've got it. I was like, you think so? Yeah. I told him, look, I'll just do a few touch-ups and we are done. So 30 minutes, I worked on it. I tried to correct the places that were a bit obviously, you know, didn't, didn't work. And I got it done. So now I collected my things. I needed to go back to the studio. We had the studio in Relumisia. And I had a, a headache because I was working on an enclosed space with spray paint, which I'd never used before. I collected my things, cleaned my brushes and all that. And then I stepped, stepped back. I was like, now this is it. So at this point, I'm waiting for him to tell, to tell me that, hey, because it was, a, it was on a Saturday, I was waiting for him to tell, him, to tell me that, look, you're going to get paid, but say on, say, Monday. But he told me that, hey, just give me your number. And he paid me there and then. I think I was too happy, so happy, the headache disappeared. That's what I remember, the headache disappeared. And I walked back to town, I was so happy. I made rent and then from that point, I actually made a conscious decision to, to master using spray paint so that uh, I would never be caught lacking again. That's, that's pretty much the first time I used spray paint. And from there, it was just more and more projects. So trying to think of the project that I've, projects that I've done, as much as I'm, I am a mural artist and I work on spaces, 
Sometimes they're not very obvious spaces. It's not outdoors. So a lot of times I do projects in internal spaces, like in offices, and um, I do projects in people's homes. So I'll, I'll come across people who know my work because they've gone to a particular office. But the most obvious and iconic project that I've done is a project that is in the middle of town, Haile Selassie Avenue, uh, in between Central Bank and uh, Cooperative Bank. It's in um, Extelcom's house. So now this goes back to me going back to, you know, Railway Museum. When I used to go to Railway Museum, there is a bridge, the poster bridge, that goes to, I don't know, City Square, poster City Square from Times Tower. And I used to pass by, to, to go across Haile Selassie every single day. And every single day, I would see Extelcom's house. A lot of people don't know that building, but it's, it's a very unique building, has a very unique facade, like it has floating tiles. And I thought to myself, this building would look incredible if it had art on it. It doesn't have to be mine, it just could be anyone's. I thought that for, for a very long time because this is a place I used to go to every single day, pass by there, look at it, and I don't even know who the architect is, but it's part of the buildings that were built during the 70s. So it's a very brutalistic architecture in line with all of those other buildings. At one point, I tweeted about it when it was still owned by Telcom. I tweeted that I wanted to, to paint that building and forgot about that, that tweet. But it ended up being something that was painted by me and one of my iconic projects. Like, that's the biggest mural in Eastern Central Africa at the moment. Apart from that, I've painted in Caxton House. I've done murals in Thika, uh, Thika Town. It's a bit, it's a smaller town. Not so many people go there. And then I've done a number of murals in offices in Westlands, offices in Upper Hill. Then I've done murals in Australia, uh, South Australia. So in Adelaide, two smaller towns. One of them is Port Augusta and another town called Wayala. And then I've done murals in Rwanda. I keep going back there. Like, I really love that place. Could be my second home. In Tanzania and Uganda. That's, that's pretty much where I have my murals in. I think once you see one of them, it becomes... There is a, there, there is a structure to the madness. And you can pretty much tell that it's work by me because of the signature style. That's what I assume. I work so hard to maintain that so that people can tell that that was me. But sometimes maybe I don't work hard enough and they might not tell. So now that tweet, that tweet went up in probably 2018 and I forgot about it because it was not necessarily manifesting. It was more of like, it would be really nice if I could that, uh, do that mural. Like at that time, there was a huge billboard for telecom. That was when Telcom was rebranding. So I was super keen on seeing whether that could happen. And it was a very wild dream. And then after that, a lot of things happen. I go to Australia and I'm doing projects there. So now out of the blues, Wallace Kantai, he's the communications director at Central Bank. He hits me up via a DM and he's like, hey, are you back or are you still in Australia? I was like, um, I'll, I'll tell you when I'm back. I was there for, say, a month or something. So when I got back, I told him that, now I'm back, we can talk. We can talk about, you know, what you, have, what you had in mind. And then he told me that he just called me at some time. I gave him my contact and I forgot about it. So I was running errands. I went to drop something in around Junction and I took a bus. I remember I took a bus back to, to town. And when I was in community, community area in Upper Hill, going back to town, I got the call from Wallace. I was like, hi, are you in a place you can talk? And I was like, sure. 
because that bus was quite quiet. It was a very as a quiet bus. I was in traffic, nothing was happening. So he told me that the governor saw your tweet about you wanting to paint Excelcom's house and he's interested in making that happen. So I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Then we can get that done because I'm available. But then in between that time, I was also planning for a trip to Kigali. So he told me that, look, someone from Central Bank will get in touch with you and you guys can discuss the final details on how to get that done. I was like, sure. So when that person called, I was on the way to the airport. COVID was, COVID was still, was, was a, say happening but not in africa so it was like that disease out there like it's not gonna get to us because we have this super immunity anyway so that was that was the thought and what we thought anyway when when they called when i got that call i was on my way to the airport so i just told them that look when i get to when i get to entebbe because i was going to entebbe then kigali i'll talk to you and when i got back we talked about the project they briefed me they told me that they had acquired that building and wanted to do a mural on it. So I got back when lockdown had started, like there was lockdown, you know, curfew and all that. So we had to design the murals for that building and we had to execute those murals at the height of COVID. So there was curfews and, you know, everything was just messed up. It was a very intense project. For every project you see, for every mega project that is like four, three, four months of designing that go into it, conversations and you know, change this, change that, before we actually get to the ground. That was pretty much what happened. Yeah, that's how the tweet changed and, you know, manifested into reality. But that was the most intense project I've ever done. At one point, I had a kind of deep hit by the door for every time, like when I woke up, took a shower, and I was stepping out to go to work because we'd start our days very early and would close very late just to cover the most ground during that project. But I have an incredible team. Those guys got me through that. And it was an amazing experience. It was a really amazing experience. I celebrated my birthday uh, at around that time when I was still doing that project. And somehow, the governor figured out that my birthday, maybe it was, it was around my birthday, and he sort of like arranged for a surprise birthday party in the middle of the tarmac behind central bank i was very anxious because it was very surprising like for me so he had his guys there in suits and we were there in helmets and dirty overalls you know paint it was a very awkward experience for me i don't know how to react in situations like that like i can deal with the paint i can deal with the huge buildings but i think i'm a very awkward person when it comes to social settings I become very lost in the middle of something like that. And I'm like, okay, I don't understand how this is happening because what I do and how things happen in my world is through very serious arrangement. Like we arrange for things and I sort of like, I'm usually in control of everything that's pretty much happening. That's what I think. Like I'm usually in control of everything that's pretty much happening to me. So yeah, that happened. I really enjoyed doing that project. I think every story matters. I sort of like realized this in a very weird way, in a very inanimate way. I've realized this when doing watercolor paintings. So with watercolor paintings, you make very faint marks with, you know, paint, like paint that has a lot of water. And in the end, you realize that every mark, every mark matters. Every mark you put down there is visible. Sometimes people downplay their impact, but 
what we creators do is really important. And when it comes to, you know, there is this huge pressure that, you know, you are an African creative, you're trying to do something that's probably not been done by anyone else uh, ahead of you. So you're the pioneer and you have all of this pressure to just, you know, to excel. Sometimes just, just do you, just do you, you know? You're just going through life like everybody else. But at the same time, it's important to realize that what you're doing matters. It's just something that might not occur to you at that exact moment. But later, when you're looking back at your trajectory, at your story, you'll sort of like realize that, you know, what I did at this point translated to this happening in this point. Like the fact that me doing murals comes from me doing, you know, trimming hedges. I made that connection very late in life, but I sort of like got used to it and accepted that. Something I did not really like doing, but uh, don't mind doing, is what has translated to what I now do. So sometimes things happen, things are connected like that. Just do you. Catch more African stories in the next episode of Legally Clueless. He has such a very interesting, quirky way of telling his story. Even his humor, he just like drops it and keeps moving. <laughs> but what I liked, um, or rather what was my take home from his story is just do you, just just create. And you don't have to become or be anything but yourself. So don't kind of like sit in whatever pressure is projected onto you which i really like because i'm writing right now a collection of poetry and sometimes i get in my own way in thinking of how i should be writing and if anybody's gonna understand it etc etc and so it was nice to listen to this story at this particular time for me and i hope it relates to where you're at right now um remember you can check out victor on season three of our video series just head over to legallycluelessafrica.com and while you're there you can check out our events page mark your diaries because we've put out our 2023 events calendar and yeah it's a lot of stuff that i think you will enjoy being part of you can also catch this podcast if you're in kenya on trace fm on monday and wednesday at 1 p.m and 11 p.m and on fridays at 1 p.m just head over to traceradio.co.ke to stream trace there or to get a list of the frequencies next week of course remember it's the fear episode so let me know what fears you fight often are there things that you do to help you fight that particular fear hit us up on instagram we're at legally clueless africa there's a link to our instagram in the show notes i would love to be able to share what has worked for you in that episode okay until next time as per usual i'm leaving you with nothing but so 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 much grace just extend extend grace to yourself and to others that's it for this episode of legally clueless podcast with me adelo nyango remember you can catch this podcast right here on trace fm every monday wednesday and friday at 9 a.m and at 8 p.m as well